Hello everybody and welcome to Casual Cognition. Hank is on hiatus this week. He's a little jet lagged. He has just returned from the United States back to Denmark. And I was a little too busy to procure a guest. So it's just me this week chatting with you, the listener. And uh, I thought I'd talk about the uh, hot button of the issue, uh, hot button issue of the day that I'm interested in, and the world seems to be interested in now, which is the whole Ukrainian kerfuffle. And I have been following this for a while now, and it is a. Um, it has obviously evolved into something much more serious than it was the uh, the last time I mentioned it on the cast a few weeks back. And, you know, I have been, um, coincidentally, even before all this started, I've been listening to a long-form... World War One program by Dan Carlin, um, who does these fantastic history podcasts, and uh, I've always been very interested in World War One, and um, and I was I was looking into it a little bit more, and I, I decided to buy this program by him. And now, and then all this stuff with uh, with Russia started, and I I started to see all these sort of parallels and jokes and and stuff about World War three and you know kind of comparing this uh, this particular situation to World War one or World War two and I found it um, really interesting because I I think that it's both like, actually does have some parallels to World War One and World War Two, but isn't like the parallels almost defeat the idea of it becoming World War Three. And so I, I've been thinking about sort of uh, the historical concept context behind stuff like this. And you know, World War One kind of led to World War II. And I, I almost don't even like the terms one and two because it um, it almost it kind of separates them out into separate conflicts. Whereas I would kind of consider World War II to be a um, if not a sequel and a continuation, at least uh, predicated upon World War One, and um, you know it, 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 it. The World War Two was really the first world war, truly world war, where the uh, you know you had wars across the globe, and there was um, you know there was the Pacific theater, there was the African theater, you know obviously the European theater, even reaching into the United States with Hawaii. And, you know, 
there there was smatterings of uh, conflicts on other parts of the globe during uh, the First World War, but it wasn't it wasn't nearly to the degree that it was in the second. And so the second world war was the first kind of like truly global conflict in my mind and in the mind of a lot of different historians but the first world war was kind of the um it was the entrance it was the the focal point um maybe the transitional point i should say between old world you know line them up musketeer cannonade kind of warfare and what we would consider to be modern warfare and you had people at the at the outset of the war of the first world war riding towards the war in uh, you know french cavalry riding in in like scarlet pants and you know carrying sabers and shit and by the end you'd have tanks and artillery and planes and you know gas attacks and all these uh, you know modern weaponry type shit and so that was kind of a a, a, a big um, transitional point between old world and modern warfare and then you had the the whole I'm, I'm kind of breezing over a lot of shit just to make a point here because uh, I don't want this to be a big history lecture but you know you had a whole like issue with the um, the Germans kind of getting um, brought to its knees in, in in a lot of ways through the Treaty of Versailles and that kind of led to World War II and then it, it created this whole new conflict and you know there there it was this um, it was a very unique situation and the reason why I'm saying all this is because, my main uh, comparison is that this is not what we're talking about with with Ukraine and Russia. This is not the beginnings of World War Three in my mind. I do not think that this is um, this is going to lead to global conflict. It's just the 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 pieces are not in place, um, and and there's a whole lot of reasons that, and and most of them I'm not going to get into in this little chat here, but I'm going to get into a few of them. Um, so that's that's a big thing, and the reason I want to say that is because I think a lot of people are kind of freaked out by this. And, you know, it is the, it's the biggest, basically the biggest um, land war offensive on a European power since, uh, since, you know, World War II. It's, it, it is a, um, it's something that hasn't happened in a long, long time in Europe specifically. It's happened in plenty of other places, but not in Europe, and that's a whole that's a whole another thing. Um, and maybe I, maybe I ought to dive into that right off the bat. Why this is unprecedented in a European nation, and this actually gets back into the the whole World War One, World War Two thing. Um, the European nations have long been this sort of block, and there's a lot of stuff that goes in with NATO and the UN, and NATO was kind of created to counter the Soviet Union 
during the Cold War. And, um, you know, and by the way, people, I'm not a, a fucking historian. So if I get any of these details wrong, I'm just trying to give an overview and just trying to give some meta points here and, and chat a little bit about this. So I apologize if I fuck up any of my facts. But, you know, I'm having some fun here. Um, but anyways, so it, it, the, the, the point of NATO is to kind of create this, uh, this buffer between the, uh, the eastern part of Europe and Asia and the western part, you know, what, what we could traditionally be called Europe, although you could arguably call Russia a European nation. But, um, Russia, and specifically under Putin, which I'll talk about Putin a little bit, um, you know, they, they, they are in opposition to NATO specifically and the EU in general and also, in, you know, to the, uh, by proxy, the United States because the United States is a big ally of those things. So um, even though... You know, paradoxically, Russia is also in the UN, so there's all these, you know, there's all these different complex international relations that go into this stuff. And I'm a nerd for this kind of shit, and I, and even I get it all mixed up. It's very complicated, very difficult to sort out what the fuck is going on in all these different things. So if you're confused about some of this stuff, you are in very good company because you basically have to be a professional to understand what the fuck is going on and i'm jumping into this as somebody who is you know been doing a lot of reading i, I you know I'm, I'm going completely off script here i don't have any notes or points or anything to bring up i'm just going off script here and it's really hard it's it's hard to like think about it and and untangle all this shit without stuff written down and you know obviously i'm not a professional i'm sure professionals can do it better but to sit there and try and explain all of this stuff, even from start to finish, on just the basic facts is really difficult. But that's not really what I'm here to do today, so lucky me. But anyways, um, what's interesting about all this is that why, like, like a lot of, a lot of people might be looking at this as like, why the fuck is Russia going through all this effort to get... Ukraine. And it's basically because they want a buffer zone in between them and this this sort of European bloc and this these these NATO nations and and the 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 EU. And Russia's biggest geopolitical ally or maybe most powerful, maybe not like most dedicated but certainly most powerful geopolitical ally is China and so they they want to create kind of a a general terrain buffer in between them and their biggest geopolitical allies because on the other side you know it's not really easy to go on uh, go towards them on the other side because it's just like there's a huge icy wasteland over there in northern northeastern russia and you know you could go nobody's thinking that that the united states is going to launch like a, a fucking land war uh you know across the bering strait and go into russia you know that's 
that's one of the reasons why I bring up some of this old old world warfare is because that's just kind of out the window these days. Because nowadays, stuff like that, you know, you're not going to surprise anybody. It would be so easy to just kind of airstrike something like that. You know, say we just land a bunch of troops over on the other side of Russia, or even, you know, as some have suggested, you know, go in and land a bunch of troops into into Ukraine. Okay, well, if we land a bunch of troops on the eastern side of Russia, it's just like a, an unprecedented aggressive act on a foreign nation, and then you're risking nuclear war, which is a whole other thing that I'm not going to try to get into too much here. Uh, but I will address a little bit. But, you know, it's 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 just like, you're just going to get blasted. You're just going to get, like, missiled and artilleried, and you're just going to be, like, marching across a, a big tundra for miles and miles. And, you know, what are you going to do? Or, or are you going to helicopter over there? Are you going to, are you going to plane over there? You know, these, that kind of offensive is truly like World War II thinking. And one of the, a big part of the lessons of these wars is that we don't do shit like that. And as I was saying, like, like it's a different question as to why you don't land troops over there as the United States, um, why you don't just like rush troops over there into Ukraine. Well, once again, you're kind of risking this big geopolitical war crisis. And, you know, there are... Um, there are ways to support Ukraine and then squeeze Russia that allow for, um, you know, a, a different type of warfare these days. And that's, uh, that's what I wanted to get into next is that, you know, the, the, sometimes people get a little frustrated with the idea of sanctions on, some, on a country like this. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But it is kind of an annoying thing whenever you're you're hearing somebody doing something egregious on the international stage and you hear the response is like, okay, well, they have ramped up the sanctions on this person. And, you know, it sounds a little, uh, sounds a little dubious as to the effect that it would have, especially on, you know, somebody like Putin. But... Here's where I'm gonna I'm gonna get back into the uh, into the historical explanations, or uh, not explanations, uh, historical uh, comparisons. It's particularly in World War One, I, I, I know that this happened a lot in World War Two, but I I just know a little bit more about the first one. Um, or at least I've been listening a little bit more <laughs> or uh, looking into the first one more recently so it's on my brain a little bit more but in general in contemporary warfare um the, like the economic parts the logistical parts end up being a huge issue and the uh they end up being like one of the one of if not the decisive factors in a uh, in in a major offensive between two big powers and what's happened is that this particular type of warfare has become so powerful people don't think about this that it's 
it's basically what war in um, is made up of amongst major superpowers these days because they are so entangled for example Russia has all their uh, you know oil exports or they're one of the biggest uh, fossil fuel exporters in the world same thing goes for somebody like Saudi Arabia China has this amazing manufacturing capability the US has all sorts of different uh, uh, ex exports, and uh, one of the biggest ones being um, intellectual property type stuff. Um, and you know, there's there's all these different economic ties in between these major superpowers, and that's why you see them fighting proxy wars in places like Afghanistan, or um, in this case freaking Ukraine but also it was kind of the same thing back in Vietnam I mean the United States wasn't interested in taking over Vietnam they were interested in trying to uh, sort of um, stamp down the spread of communism and there was other big communist powers that were funding the North Vietnamese and we wanted to fund the South Vietnamese. And so it created this, this big sort of proxy war that we ended up um, obviously sending troops into and failing miserably in, in what we were trying to do. And it ended up killing untold numbers of people on all sides. And it was just generally considered to be a horrible thing. So now nations have kind of learned from all these different conflicts over the past, you know, 100 years or so, a little bit more than, the, you know, than 100 years now, you know, 105, 110 years, that these sorts of major conflicts with shitloads of troops are just not the way to go. And the best way to wage any kind of offensive upon a geopolitical enemy is either through proxy wars or through cyber warfare or through trying to spread unrest at home or through sanctions or, you know, I mean, sanctions are these days like that's that's one of the biggest, you know, tools in the in the offensive tool bag that major nations have on each other because imposing a sanction on somebody else is kind of like and you know as as you've seen if you've been paying attention to the news they don't just like <clears throat> cut everything off they impose very targeted specific sanctions and they ratchet it up and they make it worse and worse and it's it, <clears throat> it's it's very similar to like like a a normal offensive but you're doing it in a monetary way rather than a physical militaristic way. And this gets me back to Russia, where I think that that's kind of what Putin was expecting, where, like, okay, well, if I just do this uh, this little thing, you know, I, I took Crimea not too long ago, and uh, maybe if I just uh, roll in here and I say there's Nazis in the region and I and I kind of uh, snatch this country, maybe they won't get too too pissed. And 
you know, the sanctions will be mild. They'll be uh, manageable. Not everybody will sanction me. The Ukrainians will kind of roll over. And, uh, you know, we'll be able to, to take this country back for Russia, which, by the way, they've been wanting to do for a long time. And he didn't really count on the international backlash and the uh, severity of the sanctions that he would get. And most importantly, I think, the um, extreme resistance of the Ukrainians. And this is actually another thing that brings me back to World War I, the beginnings of World War I, that's very interesting here. Um, when Germany first was was about to start this uh, this whole conflict, they were going through Belgium, and they expected the Belgians to just kind of uh, roll over and just be like, okay, you guys can go through, and they said, okay, well, you just don't, don't destroy any of the railways or roads or tunnels or anything, and we won't hurt you, and and the Belgians just destroyed everything and occupied a bunch of forts and just made it miserable for the Germans to try and go through this place. And that's kind of what reminds me of these Ukrainians here of like, you know, I think the Russians kind of, ex or I shouldn't even say the Russians, I should say Putin and his administration. Because um, I don't want to hate on like the Russian people. There's actually been a lot of demonstrations across Russia that, that are condemning this action. And, you know, as um, <clears throat> is the uh, the unfortunate modern reality in a lot of places, we have to kind of make sure to condemn the the governments and the power structures that are in place in, in, in certain areas like this and not the the people who live there, although some of the people who live there are doing shit or, or, are, or are promoting shitty things like like. We can't just condemn the the nation as a whole. We have to condemn the uh, the particular power structure who is um, uh, performing these kinds of actions. So um, I lost where I was at whenever I went off on that rant. But um, yeah, like like Putin, he he wants <clears throat> he wants uh, he wants kind of a a tepid response to this kind of thing. And I think that he, he bit off more than he can chew here because he rolled in expecting kind of like the, the Germans with the Belgians back in, I think it was 1914, like to, for them to be like, okay, okay, we're not gonna, we're not gonna risk war with Russia, with the big dad, daddy Russia. And, uh, you know, the international community is only threatening these small sanctions. So we'll let you come in and, and take us over, I guess. And instead, they're like, fuck you. We're fighting for our country. Get the fuck out. And the international community is like, yeah, we're with you. Fuck you. We're going to impose some serious sanctions on you. And by the way, in case you haven't heard, the Russians, they closed their stock market. And the ruble has tanked. The ruble is the uh, the name of the Russian currency, and the value of it has been tanking. So it does; these sanctions do affect the economies of these major nations in a big way, especially some somebody like Russia, who Russia is basically like a petro state. You know, it has, it has most of its economy is based around its export 
um, I shouldn't say most, but a huge, a, 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 a very significant chunk <clears throat> of its economy is based around its export of fossil fuels. And so if, if you disrupt a certain major part, specifically that part, which they have been targeting, of, of the Russian economy, along with, as they've also been targeting, like, foreign investment banking, um, th- their economy is kind of fragile. So it has been uh, tanking very, very quickly. So they're going to feel the pain of this really fast. <clears throat> So now you've got this tough situation from a Putin standpoint where your economy is running to shit, people at home are pissed, the Ukrainians are not rolling over like you were hoping they would, and the international community is supporting them and targeting you with major economic sanctions. And to top it all off, your best economic, or not even, not gonna, a geopolitical ally, China, has been kind of keeping its silence. And that's that's kind of been the big wild card here. And I, I've been wondering whether Putin thought that China may have been more vocal in its support of them. But, like, for example, like in a UN Security Council vote to condemn the actions against Ukraine, China abstained. Like, they didn't want to talk about it <laughs> they didn't they didn't vote on it and you know so they're, they're not like supporting it and they're not against it and they're just trying to stay out of the whole thing and that's exactly what china would want to do because they they want they don't want any kind of militaristic action because they want they want their 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 economic stuff you know they're they're in a very strong position um, in a in a sort of adversarial geopolitical sense, to um, to put pressure on foreign nations in an economic sense, and also if they want to, in a cyber warfare sense. You know they're very sophisticated on that sort of thing, and so is Russia. But you know, all in all, I'm kind of confused as to why. Putin is doing this sort of thing. The only thing I can guess is that he made a bad gamble, and he thought that this wasn't going to go, is it wasn't going to be as serious. Maybe maybe he thought because of COVID or something like that, like people wouldn't wouldn't uh, pay as much of attention as they are. But um, the good news, if you're worried about the sort of World War Three possibility, um. In both of the the world wars, there was uh, there was some major powers on both sides that were pretty strongly against the other side, and um, maybe not right in the beginning, but there was a lot of different defensive packs and you know strife, long time strife in between certain nations. In this particular situation, it's mostly just. Russia being antagonistic. And it's very hard for me personally. I mean, obviously, as I've said, I'm not an expert. I'm layman. But it's very hard for me to see China, like, doing anything that would be too scary militaristically in this situation. I just, I mean, I I, I read a lot of kind of this kind of stuff and, 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 um, 
so I am parroting a lot of uh, people who are much smarter and and, uh, more knowledgeable than me on this kind of stuff, but nothing I've ever seen has said that anybody's worried about anyone doing anything militaristically to in support of Russia, which I think is a very encouraging thought if you're worried about the World War War III possibility. Um, and the obviously the biggest worry of um, most people in, in that vein is the thought of nuclear warfare, which, again... Me, personally, I'm just not all that worried about because think about it in this way. You know, people are worried about if, like, a terrorist organization gets a, a nuclear bomb, which I understand. If you have a a fanatical uh, group who their, their goals, you know, they're perfectly happy with dying... Because their goals, they have some ideological, idealistic uh, viewpoint that that says like, oh, you know, it doesn't matter if I die because my cause is this important. They're fine with do with using whatever methods and 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 using some kind of nuclear bomb. And I'm not I'm not talking about any any sort of group or ideology in particular. I'm just saying if, if there's like an extremist organization of this, of some kind or uh, this kind of that kind, then uh, people are worried about them getting a nuclear bomb. And I understand that whenever it comes to a major superpower, some uh, like a Russia, one thing to think about is that they're a lot of, like a lot of their ruling class, aside from Putin and his organization it's kind of like the oligarchy of Russia. And, you know, that's um, it's not terribly far off from the United States. Um, but a lot of these places who are in charge of nuclear weapons, like they have, like, their, their goals are not to destroy the world. Like, even the most corrupt administration like a Putin administration, their goals are not to blow everything up because they're enjoying themselves. They're they're sitting pretty. They're doing great. They don't want to fuck everything up. They don't want to shoot off a nuke. They're trying to bite off a little piece of territory, but I truly do not think, and this is all my opinion, obviously, they're not trying to actually start a nuclear war and if we prod them with these economic sanctions i don't think it's going to escalate into a nuclear war as i've seen some people um postulate over the past week or so so my i guess my my overarching thing is that there's some very interesting parallels in this situation, it's a it's it's obviously not an unprecedented situation, but it is a new situation for this century, and um, it hasn't happened in uh, many decades in Europe, and it is something to keep an eye on and be aware of, but I also don't think it's something to panic over. 
Um, so let's uh, let's try to support, maybe donate to to some stuff, uh, some charities uh, helping some Ukrainian refugees if you can. It's one th- one way that you can um, help out in an actual physical way and not just sit there and pull your hair out because you think you might get hit by a nuclear bomb. And um, I guess the last thing I will say is good luck to the uh, to the people of Ukraine. And all my love to you, and all my love to you listening. Thanks for listening to me yap for the past half hour, and we will see you next week back with an actual person for me to talk to, so I'm not just screaming into the void. So, thanks again for listening, everybody. See you next time.